0: Welcome to episode 7. This uh, is starting at page 96, and we are reading from Brand's perspective. Um, what I love about this chapter is we're going to learn more about Brand's character and kind of his background. Uh, the start of the chapter uh, has a brilliant quote that says, Everybody loves a good sob story so long as it's not their story. And I think you're going to enjoy this funny character but I also think you'll feel a little empathy for him as you learn his own story. Let's read. Everybody loves a good sob story, so long as it's not their story. I don't know why. I'm not sure if people honestly care about other people or they just want a way to confirm that they've got it better than someone else. Someone they can point to and say, It could be worse. I could be that guy. Don't get me wrong. I don't think people are really like that. Not most people anyway. But I think we're all guilty of it sometimes. Just like we're all guilty of doing the opposite. Looking at everyone else around us and thinking that none of them understand. That they're living in a fantasy full of birthday cake and sunshine and can't possibly get what we're going through. I think that all the time. I can't help it, because as it turns out, nobody knows what I'm going through. Then again, maybe that's because I haven't told them. Eduardo didn't sob when I told him about my story, but he did get quiet. He knew Miss Bixby, he said. He remembered the pink hair, or was it orange? He couldn't quite recall, but she had definitely been in the shop before. And he was very sorry to hear about her diagnosis. He was even sorrier when I told him my side of the story, the truth, if not the whole truth, and why it was so important for me to see her today. Then he asked what this all had to do with the cheesecake, and I explained that part too. He nodded to himself several times, tapping his finger on the counter before telling me just to take the cake, the whole cake. Gratis. No charge. We argued about it for a few minutes more, and then I finally made a compromise, taking the cake and leaving 25 bucks on the counter. Nothing's free. Nothing free is worth having. That's not one of Miss Bixby's sayings. My father actually taught me that one. My father, who keeps most of his money, most of our money, in the bread box by the refrigerator and tells me to take whatever I need. I watch it slowly diminish, dwindle down to a few bills over a couple of weeks. And then I walk to the ATM by the village pantry and make a withdraw and the bread box is suddenly full again, like magic. I'm sure he keeps track, but he doesn't say anything. Most days it's just lunch money. Couple of bucks to rent a movie, cash and tip for the pizza delivery guy. Fridays are different though. Fridays are the best. Fridays, I take at least a hundred bucks. Today, I took 20. I guess I should have taken more. Of course, if my father knew that I spent 20 of his dollars on a cake for my teacher, he'd flip. Of course, if he stopped and thought about it, He'd realize he probably owes her as much as I do. Nothing worth having is free. There's a used bookstore just down the street, and Topher insists on going. He says there's something he wants to look for, something he should have thought of earlier. We still have some time before the right bus comes to pick us up. The bookstore's not part of the original plan written across my arm a few days ago, but I can tell Topher's a little peeved at me for letting him out of the whole cheesecake getting, so I go along. First things first, though. We have to figure out some way to shove this cake in one of our backpacks. It weighs as much as a watermelon, and the box is the size of a microwave. Steve's pack is the biggest, so we empty it out, putting the speakers and Topher's and wrapping the backpack around the box as best as we can. It doesn't zip all the way, but the cake isn't going anywhere. We should have brought a cooler, Steve says. Cheesecake should be refrigerated. I think it'll be fine for a couple of hours, Topher says, though I can tell by the look on his face that he doesn't know the first thing about cheesecake. If it doesn't come slathered in ketchup or have a picture of Captain Crunch on it, Topher's not interested. Steve carefully slides his arms through the straps, grunting at the weight. He looks like it's about to tip over, make him tip over backward, and I wonder if I shouldn't be the one to carry it. But I know if I say something to Steve, he will think I'm hinting at something, that he's not strong enough, that he can't handle it. So I let it go, and we walk over to Alexander's. That's the name of the bookstore. Maybe the guy who owns it. Then again, maybe not. We push through the curtain of dust that greets us at the door, followed by the smell of pine wood and Old Spice cologne, the same kind my father used to wear. Back when he took showers every day, before even going to the bathroom, <laughs> counted as exercise. This place looks like one of those creaky old libraries you find in one of those Goosebumps books. Jammed with books from floor to ceiling, stacked sideways, spineways slanted two and three deep on shelves that lean in every possible direction, like Jenga blocks about to fall. The floors creak when you step on them, and even when you just stand there. But that's not the spookiest part. The spookiest part is the owl sitting on one of the high up shelves by the door, stuffed, obviously, except... Who's ever stuffed it? Did it with its head twisted around, looking backward? Owls can do that, I know, but it's still freaky. A sign on the wall below the twisted owl says "Caveat emptor." In fancy gold letters, and then smaller underneath: "Buyer beware." Beware of what? I wonder. The owl's clearly missing some feathers. I guess it's seen better days. The door swings shut behind us, no chimes or ringing bells to give us away. Topher calls out a, Hello? There's no answer. Bizarre, he says. Yeah, I say, and creepy, Topher adds. That too. You ever been here before? I shake my head. Didn't even know this place existed. Topher inches a little closer to me. I can't imagine what he's thinking. His imagination must be in overdrive. Reminds me of the bookstore from the never-ending story, he says. Never read it, I said. It's all right. It's practically impossible to finish anyway. Any other time I'd laugh if I wasn't feeling so weirded out. We stand by the door, none of us wanting to take a further step inside. There aren't enough lights. At least a third of the bulbs are burnt out and that makes for a lot of shadows on the walls. I get a chill, and it seems to be contagious because Topher and Steve shiver too. Then just as I'm about to suggest turning around, heading back, and waiting at the bus stop, Steve sneezes so hard he gets a blob of his snot in the crook of his elbow. A huge yellow glob quivering there like jello. I think about the time I picked his nose. This is way grosser. I mean, a miss you. He calls out desperately, more snot shaking down his lower lip. Topher says it to just rub it in, but Steve looks horrified at the idea. I look around and find an antiquey-looking sign that says powder room, pointing down a dark hallway. Steve looks at the hallway, looks at the snot, trying to decide if it's worth the risk. Then he finally stumbles off. Messy, Topher says. Yeah, I say. The upside is that Steve has broken the invisible force field that was holding us in place by the door, at least. We take a few timid steps, me leading the way. Save for the three of us and the freaky, backward-glancing owl, the place seems deserted. I stare at the mountains of books leaning against each other along the crooked wood shelves. Now that we're inside and surrounded by them, though, I feel a little better. It reminds me a little of room 213 and how there are books everywhere you look. Miss Bixby would like it here, I think think this is the kind of place she would go a place you can get lost in a wooden placard dangling by twine from the ceiling says we're in the literature section i run a finger along one shelf leaving a trail in the dust and pull out a copy of a book by someone named alfred lord tennyson never heard of the guy sounds like a blowhard the gilded letters on the cover say "Idylls of the king I open it up to the middle, see that it's actually poetry, really long poetry, and quickly put it back. I don't mind reading literature when I have to, but it's almost summer and I have my limits. Suddenly the books start to speak. There's not to make reply. There's not to reason why. There's but to do and die. Topher and I instinctively step close together, from the dark hallway, with the powder room, I hear a sound, not quite a scream, more of a squeak, but definitely Steve's voice, before I can even take a step toward it. A man much taller than me peeks his head around the corner of the shelf, looking at us from behind thick, silver-framed glasses. I nearly trip over Topher, as we both stagger backward. Aha, he says. The man who emerges from behind the bookcase sh- looks like Yoda. If Yoda were a nearsighted five-foot-tall white man in khaki pants and a frumpy gray sweater, pointy ears jut out of a melonish head, head topped with little wisps of white hair tufting out like pulled cotton. And he's got Yoda wrinkles, too the kind that come in waves crashing down to his eyebrows. His gray wool cardigan reaches nearly to his knees, and he has this haunted expression on his face, eyes wide, dangerous-looking. Boldly they rode and well, he bellows, into the jaws of death, into the mouths of hell. The last word, he slaps his hand down on the bookshelf beside him, and I jump. Then the man's expression suddenly softens. Tennyson, he says brightly. Topher mumbles something like, woah. I don't say anything. I'm starting to think there's a good chance we're about to get murdered. The charge of the light brigade, the man says. Surely you've heard of it cannon to right of them cannon to left of them cannon in front of them volleyed and thundered stormed at the with shot and shell boldly they rode and well his voice grows thunderous then gravely then thunderous again and he pounds one fist into the other hand and grins i shake my head the man frowns what are they teaching kids in school these days I maneuver a little, small steps, just so I have a clear path to the exit. Not sure he realizes it. But Topher is holding onto the sleeve of my shirt. Sorry, I didn't hear you boys come in. I was down in the basement, eating a body. The old man adds, licking his lips. Um, uh, what? Topher asks. Biscotti. The old man repeats, holding up a half-eaten biscuit. They're really quite good, dunked in tea. Crazy five-foot-tall Yoda, who could still very well be an axe murderer, circles around us, blocking our path, heading toward the front of the store, probably to lock us in. I think we should get out of here, I whisper to Topher. But then I remember that Steve is still in the bathroom. The old man is standing at the entrance now, looking up at the stuffed owl on the shelf above. He calls back over his shoulders. Normally, Scout warns me when we have guests. Don't you, Scout? The name strikes a chord, and I feel a little jolt of electricity shoot through me. The owl's name is Scout? I ask. "'I know a scout. Miss Bixby introduced us not too long ago.' "'The man nods. "'Good name for an owl, don't you think?' "'He cocks his head, as if listening to the stuffed bird. "'Scout's wondering, "'What brought you in here today?' "'My eyes dance from the owl to the old man and back again, "'and I elbow Topher. "'This was all his idea, after all.' Topher clears his throat. throat) We were... I step on his foot. I mean, I was looking, um, you know, uh, for a book. Then you've come to the right place, hasn't he, Scout? The old man snorts and snaps his fingers. Maybe he's not accountable. Accountable. But he's clearly nuts. No shortage of supply here, though I should warn you, I don't carry comic books. I don't have any diaries written written by wimps. And the only novel I have about vampires was written over a hundred years ago. So if you're looking for anything like that, you might as well leave. Funny, that's what I said, I say to Topher through clenched teeth. I look backward toward the hall and see if Steve has come out of the restroom yet. Actually, Topher says, ignoring me, I just need to know if you can point me to the fantasy section. The old man points his finger, puts his finger to his nose and then points to Topher. fantasy, of course, I could tell just by looking at you. And in a flurry of his flapping cardigan, he comes and takes Topher by the shoulders, leading him through the maze of shelves. Topher glances back at me, begging me with his eyes to come along. But I hear another door open and see Steve finally emerging from the hallway, faced, face, ghostly. He approaches slowly, glancing over his shoulder with every other step. When he gets to me, he takes a deep breath. There's a shark in the toilet, he says. If it were Topher, I'd laugh or give him a dirty look. But this is Steve. Steve doesn't make things up. He researches them carefully and then commits them to memory so he can bore you with them later. His eyes are as round as cheesecakes. Show me, I say, leaving Topher to fend for himself. We head down the dark hallway to the restroom, and I flip on the light. Steve stands by the open toilet, pointing with both hands, just in case I don't know where to look. Huh, I say. Sure enough, someone has painstakingly painted the inside of the toilet bowl to look like a great white shark gape his gaping mouth pretty much just the mouth that and that triangle snout <laughs> like in the movie poster from jaws rows of jagged teeth red gullet deep dark pit leading to who knows where who paints a shark in their toilet Steve wants to know. Of course, he hasn't met the crazy, wispy-haired man who talks to stuffed owls and shouts about the jaws of hell yet. I stare at the shark. I wonder how the paint even stays on, I say. You'd think it would wear away by now, you know, erosion or something. Probably because no one ever uses it, Steve mutters. I guess it would be a little disconcerting sitting there picturing those teeth right below you. That long snout reaching up to take a big bite out of your you-know-what. Didn't you? Are you kidding And that? Even if I had to, I wouldn't. I look down again at the great white. It makes me think of my dad. I point to the door. If you'll excuse me, I say. All right, and that's the end of our episode today. We are starting to learn more about Brian's backstory. And he gives us hints of it being a sad story. Uh, It tells us that he's kind of left to defend for himself, defend for himself. He takes money as he needs to. And his dad doesn't really care Um, he also at the end says that the great white shark painted on the toilet reminds him of his dad. So we'll start to learn more about his character and his backstory in the next episode.